This episode of Rebel Talk is brought to you by Rebel Tech. Human stories for startups. Rebel Shrebel, you've dropped your dress. Rebel Shrebel, your face is a mess. I love agriculture, I love vegetables, but I also love New York, and I'm developing new relationships and friendships and feeling close to it. Um, and this seemed like a very interesting compromise, so to speak, and also more, not just a compromise, but a really exciting idea that it turned into. You took your dress, rebel shrebel, your face is a mess, rebel shrebel, how could they know, hot track, I love you so. Hello and welcome to Rebel Talk, a brand new podcast that celebrates rebels from every walk of life. Each episode, we talk to the troublemakers whose predilection for bending the rules is driving progress, change and transformation. I'm your host, Mark Schwakey, and today I'm joined by Ben Flanner, rooftop farmer, founder and urban rebel. Formerly from the world of Wall Street finance and consultancy, since 2009, Ben has been cultivating vegetables on an industrial scale on the rooftops of New York buildings. Nowadays, Ben and his team at Brooklyn Grange raise over two acres, providing over £50,000 of produce to stores, farmers, markets and restaurants, such as Balthazar and Gramercy Tavern. Ben, thank you for joining us all the way from New York. How are you? Thank you, I'm great. Listen, I recently read an interview in which you said there are obviously some logistical challenges to farming on a roof. Tell us about these rooftop farms. Tell us about how, how this works. Logistical challenges, that's a good way to put it. But what, what we do actually is we cover roofs, we, we install green roofs, so we use a, a blend of, of compost that basically emulates the soil, and we grow in a very natural, almost traditional way. But the very untraditional thing is that we are doing this on roofs in the middle of uh, New York City. And how high, are, I mean, how high are these buildings? Are we talking skyscrapers? No, we're not talking skyscrapers. That would be an additional logistical challenge <laughs> due to the, the transport up and down and the wind and typically the fact that the skyscrapers don't have this type of surface area that, that we're, we're using. But we are looking at buildings that are the two sites we have. One is six stories, one is 11 stories. So that's like around 100 up to 150 feet. Yeah. And they're big, flat buildings that are built very strong so they can handle a nice um, structural load and spaces where we can almost emulate like a field, like an acre field where, with long rows and organized straight rows of, of beds of vegetables. And we just fill the whole thing up with vegetables and we leave a little bit of space available for events and fun things and storage and, and um, operate these farms. And do you have any livestock? We have some chickens and some bees. The chickens and bees. And are the chickens, like, do you specially select chickens with a good head for heights? Or <laughs> Yes, exactly. No, I don't know where they are. They're, uh, they're, as long as they're in a nice, comfortable run, they're, they're great. We, yeah. we, um, they, they have these beautiful eggs. And, and um, the, you know, the chickens are part of the sort of the, the ecosystem, and they're not integral to the business plan. Or They're not chickens that were previously from Wall Street that were rebel chickens that came across because they loved your idea. They're not rebel chickens. They, they were. <laughs> Some of them were raised in my closet, however. But, but, you know, they're integral to sort of the multifaceted aspect of what we do is where, because um, if, if you're going to do a crazy thing like this and grow two and a half acres of food in, in New York City, you're going to be involved with the community. You're going to have tours. You're going to have kids up here. And we do. And um, that's the kids love coming to see the chickens. And, and it's really um, quite a bit more powerful than you, you might realize without thinking about it a little bit. 
how important it is for people in New York City where there's 12 million people packed into this sort of concrete area to be aware and to keep on reminding to keep on reminding everyone of where the food comes from and what it means to make and grow and and create and process food but especially in a place where like New York City where food is so important I mean, to give that kind of sensibility, that experience and that education to those people, to, to, you know, that refresher, that reminder, hey, this is how food grows, don't forget, and this is where it comes from. I think, I'm glad you said it was uh, a crazy idea, because I, I, when I heard about it, I was astonished. It's so, so impressive to have, like, uh, farms in the air, you know. It, it, we've all been to New York City, those of us who are lucky enough to have been to New York City see this as you said, all those millions of people in what is essentially the size of kind of a small portion of London and, and it's, you know, everything is raised up in the air. You look up, you don't expect to see farms up there. So how do you, how does it, how does it work? What's a rooftop worth? So obviously the New York City property market is as inflated as anywhere else in the world in, in, in those major conurbations. How do you, is this a new kind of deal that you have to do with a landlord or a, you know a property company in order to access their space yeah that's a really good and practical question and that was really the big the big question at the beginning when, when we started doing this because it all started with this literally looking up craning your neck and seeing all these roofs all this space and full sun and nothing happening on these roofs except a waterproof membrane and some some rubber basically um but once we started shopping this around and I started visiting with landlords and showing them photos and, and um, all these different opportunities of what we can do, the, the big question is, how much can you pay? And that took quite a lot of negotiations, actually, to show numbers in front of them about what we can make off the food, what we think we can make off of events, all in kind of, we were just very transparent about it. And then said, well, great, so this is what we think will be left over. So want to do it? <laughs> and... Um, some said no, a couple said yes. Some of them kind of methodically were comparing it with their other options, and they said, well, I can rent out to uh, MTV Music Shoot once a year, and they might trash the roof, but they're up for a week, and they give me X amount of money, so like, how do you compete with that? Or um, what if I covered the whole thing with solar panels, and then what type of revenue would that generate me? Um, and some were just sort of a little bit more visionary and just said, well, this looks like a terrific idea. We love this greenery. We want to do this. Let's do it. <laughs> and also the, the food movement. Um, I know it's a very vague term, but uh, around 10 years ago when I became interested in farming and agriculture was when I was just starting to realize some of the very complicated challenges of our industrial food system and, and starting to realize some of the uh, the chronic diseases that we have, which are a function of our diets and so forth. And that really got me energized um, to to uh, grow natural, healthy food and, and promote some vegetables and healthy eating and also diversification. Yeah, I mean, th- so this was back when you were uh, uh, in finance in a, in a previous career, right? Yes, I worked in uh, in consulting for a couple of years and then I worked in, in uh, a financial company doing online marketing. Yeah. Because we saw you were described in one New Yorker article as being far too busy checking soil depth to speak to uh, a reporter, <laughs> but you've taken our, you've, you've taken our call today, so there's no escaping that. But I, I want to talk a little bit about how you went from finance to farming, because how, how did that happen, and where are you? You grew up in Wisconsin, so I guess you yeah. had green fingers and you were into 
the outdoors, right? Uh-huh. So I grew up around some of the best topsoil in the whole world, but didn't really appreciate it. And moved to New York and um, began working. Um, you know, of course, like anything else, there's a couple of pivotal moments that you can look back on that, that kind of inspire you or that start to really change your thinking. And some of it was books and readings and whatnot that I was doing. But also one that was really interesting was a project that I worked on in Australia. Um, I, I literally got sent there for about a half year to, to work at a winery. And we did this very detailed analysis of the winery's um, costs and revenues to come up with profitabilities of all of their different SKUs, their different units of, of, of wine bottles, which was like over 100. And it was interesting, but also burdensome. But I found myself really getting excited about the viticulture and um, be, started be getting an understanding of that. But but was like I came back to New York and I kept on thinking about the growers really more than anything else, um, even more than the winemaking, which is traditionally, uh, you know, appealing. And then I started to visit other farms around the Northeast and, and kind of just made up this, this decision in my mind that I, I wanted to do this. I, I guess the office just wasn't really cutting it for me. I was composting in my desk drawer and... Uh, cooking uh, all the time when I was out, out of work. I was, I was fermenting things and experimenting with figuring out how to make kvass and cured a pork belly in my fridge. You know, just doing things that were a little bit, I guess you could say I was maybe a little bit of, uh, constrained by my work environment compared with some of the things I wanted to do up on my feet and moving around. Sure, but if you're going to take a brave decision to go from what you've been doing and what you're sort of successful at to going into farming because suddenly you find your passion you listen to it and you decide you're going to act upon it the natural next step is to leave new york city and go somewhere where the topsoil's good and where the outdoors is big and where there's already farms and already people growing stuff what was behind the creative leap to go to look up in the sky and go wait a minute there's a there's a natural farm up there we could do something what what led you to that moment do you think it's so true and it it was um the support of friends, and it was just creative thinking, and it was that creating of the head to see these roofs, and also a little bit of that magnetism of New York City that was starting to suck me in at that point. I'd been here for about four years only, um, but just feeling like I really like it here, yeah. and I want to do this, and I love agriculture, and I love vegetables, but I also love New York, and I'm developing new relationships and friendships, and feeling close to it. Um, and this seemed like a very interesting compromise, so to speak, and also more, not just a compromise, but a really exciting idea that it turned into. You said before some of the building, I don't even know who you talk to if you want to go and use their roof for a farm, but some of the, some of the customers you have, for some it's a revenue-based thing, and for some, you know, you, you might find it difficult for them to even understand how to value their own roof space, but for some they're a bit visionary. Do you remember the first time you had to stand in somebody's office and explain that you wanted to put a farm on their roof and how it was going to work? Do you remember, did you feel nervous? Did you feel like it was a bit crazy? Did you feel like you oversold it? Or <laughs> Very good point. Well, we should take one step back to remind ourselves that this is New York and nothing is free. And we, at the time we were having these conversations, again, with, with friends or whoever, you know, when you're into an idea like this, all you do is talk about it. It's 100% of your thought, 100% of your conversations, practically. 
And uh, everybody was always telling me that the roof should be free because what else are they doing with the roof? They're not doing anything else with it. Yeah. And I very, very quickly realized that, again, it sort of comes back to this is New York, but really this is life or the U.S., the capitalist environment. A building is an asset, and there's always a risk and a reward, and nothing is free like that in New York City. So how do we go from free to a, a fair fair deal? Um, and as I mentioned, that took a lot of work. But the interesting thing about this is that this was a little bit after the financial crisis, just a year or two afterwards. So people were a little bit more nervous or hesitant about uh, the economy, and everybody was hungry to figure out another revenue stream. So yeah. the interest was actually quite large amongst people that I got um, meetings with. And they saw the photos and, and um, said, okay, this is, this is a great idea. And everybody was into it. But then, of course, the next step is asking the questions, learning some of the logistics of it, and the landlord truly starting to put on their con- you know, a little more conservative hat and think about, okay, so what's the risk? What if something happens? What if the roof collapses? How much am I going to make? But also even the visionary people who I mentioned, um, they're also seeing dollars too because um, this can be really beneficial to a building too. Because, for example, if you find a building that's only that's under construction, that's being renovated or that's only half rented or something like that, all of a sudden you have this huge draw on the roof. You have this good amount of positive energy and new business on it that brings people in. Uh, that directly or indirectly uh, ends up being a financial benefit to the landlord also. Right, so let's give give listeners a quick um, idea of what we're talking about here. How many acres do you have? How many people do you have working for you? How many how many vegetables do you grow? Something like that. Give me a give me a sense of the size of the operation. Well, we have two and a half acres of rooftop farm space. We grow about fifty thousand pounds of vegetables per year. We have approaching twenty employees right now. Full time. Yes, and we've also diversified our business quite a bit, and we've expanded. So that includes not just the farming, because any farmers out there will know that twenty full time on two and a half acres will put you in the red. Yeah. <laughs> But we also have events up on the spaces, and we also install and consult on other um, green roof and farming and garden operations, um, which is our design and build area of our business. How much of you as a farmer, and how much are you a, an entrepreneur running a business, looking at the numbers, trying to figure out the next idea? I am split into everything. 25% farmer, 75% entrepreneur at this point. And so within that, you must have some stories about things that you've, you know, fails that you've had or challenges that you've faced that, or ideas that didn't come off. What, what, what are some of the challenges or the big kind of uh, reversals that you've faced in setting up this business? One thing that comes to mind is actually just very specific to agriculture, which is the fact that this is what drew me into it, too. I, I guess I've always been attracted to a challenge, but you go to visit these diversified small organic style vegetable farms and it's just it's like heaven you know you go out there and you see a hundred different crops and all these beautiful colors and all these different stages of life and all these different projects and of course this type of person tends to be a bit of a tinkerer sometimes and there's fun things going on there's new innovations things they're working on etc so it's, it's really fun but the converse of that is complexity right yeah. There's a lot of things to do. And there's a, a massive to-do list, much longer than you can ever accomplish. 
So it becomes really, really important to figure out how to prioritize this stuff and to figure out where, what does pay your bills, what doesn't pay your bills, what's fun and what's really important. And then, of course, communicating that to other, other people that, that you work with. And I guess uh, just in short is that you don't know how much you don't know when you dive into this because I look at some of the early farming decisions, the crops we grew, the, the succession planting styles that we use, the things that now after doing this for eight, eight nine years uh, that, that I just look back at it, it's like, I can't believe we did that, or I can't believe it took me so many years to figure that out. Like what? Like planting a huge amount of space at the same time. It sounds, it sounds smart, right? Yeah, um, it does. Uh, on the outset, you have you have beautiful weather, you have a bunch of dirt with nothing in it, and you have an afternoon free, so you plant a lot of seeds. But the, the truth is that all these seeds are going to come in and be ready for harvest at the exact same time, because Mother Nature is extremely uh, amazing like that. Like, if it's a 25-day crop, it is probably going to be 25 days, and it's not going to be 35. Yeah. And... Um, that means 25, just to carry out that example, that means 25 days later, you're going to have a shitload of food on your hands, maybe all the same crop, and you start hustling around and try to make all these sales, but then what are you going to do two weeks later because you didn't put more in the pipeline or you didn't uh, think it through? So really, it, really, after you get a little more experience, you realize that slow and steady wins the race with this kind of thing and that what you want to do is be extremely regimented in terms of planting bit by bit by bit by bit, but over a very consistent uh, time frame. So it kind of it kind of pains the entrepreneur in you because you get up there and you see a bunch of empty dirt and you say, I'm wasting space, I'm wasting time, and therefore I'm not getting the yield or the money that I should be getting. You know, so these are lessons that that take time, but they seem like common sense. Like you should just know it, you know? help me with my curiosity is there a specific crop that's really really good and productive on a roof of new york city and even a a crop that's really bad for growing on a roof yeah um give me a good and a bad we really like arugula Mm -hmm. it uh arugula like rocket yeah i believe what do you call that yeah yeah we call it rocket we call it rocket rocket popular on salads Um, some people have it on pizza yeah, yeah. We, it grows well. We really like growing it. It grows. Um, it's, we've figured out the irrigation and the water and the fertility for it, and we've we've invested in some some good systems for it. Um, that's a a nice decent chunk of our revenue, and and it has a good yield. You're like a rocket scientist. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, I'm, I'm I'm kind of celebrating <laughs> my own joke here. You can't see me, but I've got my arms in the air. I'm fist pumping. <laughs> I too sometimes self-laugh at my own jokes. What particular crop is is shockingly bad on a roof? What doesn't work on New York City's roofs? Yeah, well, one other thing I was just going to say about Rocket as a quick reminder to to everyone is that remember, as soon as you cut a leaf, it's it's dead and yeah. it's starting to die and decompose. So, what part of the, also the draw of that is the fact that we do have a very short supply chain. Um, and we're five miles away from the restaurant, so we can get that rocket leaf, that arugula leaf, to to the customers pretty quickly, and it tends to have a real nice, spicy, strong flavor, um, and it's oh. also very perishable, so it makes sense to grow something like That's that amazing. in a economy. Do you know what I really like? That That's amazing, because I was going to, I guess I was thinking that the logistics of the operation that you've got there is that you, I suppose it's not even that hard if the elevator's working, you've got to, you've got to get it 
picked and off, you know, up and down the building. And just, but actually, you're right. The supply chain's really, really short. Like you, you're a walk away from the Balthazars that want the best and the, you know, the freshest ingredients. That's really brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also sell a lot of edible flowers to Balthazar, which is similar too, in that it, it's a product of the very short lifespan. So um, it really doesn't make sense to be shipping that stuff across across the entire country. Edible flowers. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's like a Valentine's Day treat double, isn't it? Yeah, they, they look real nice on the salads and the desserts and stuff. It's a, it's a beautiful garnish. I'm killing the dad jokes. So what today. do we stink at? Yeah. What do we stink at? Uh, Brussels sprouts. Bloody sprouts. Can't even grow on a roof. Yeah. And, and, you know, they can be good. So they're, they're fun to grow. And especially for, and, and a lot of my other friends that are farmers have the same sort of problem is too, is, it's like you, you typically, if you go into organic vegetable growing, you tip, you probably love vegetables and you probably love eating every single one of them. And, um, and it kind of hurts when you, when you stink at something, yeah. but as you push through a little bit, you can realize it's okay to stink at a few things and just be good at the, the other things. And you can go support your farmer's market and go buy them or trade them from somebody else too. So tell me this, you've got a two and a half acre space with a foot of soil on an 11 story roof how do you how do you get the soil up there that's a lot of soil well we install the green roofs typically one of two ways if it's small you can actually haul it up or bring it up a freight elevator but if it's a large green roof you basically have two options uh to use a crane and those big super sacks that that are like a, a two cubic yards which i think is about a cubic meter yeah or uh, there's something that's actually a little bit newer on the scene, but it seems to be the most efficient, um, and it's a blower truck. And it's the same kind of tube and truck system and pump system that they use to get concrete up to skyscrapers. Or I've also heard that they use them for landscaping, like to blow wood chips onto a long, long path in the middle of a park or something like that. And basically, we pressurize it and we treat the soil like a like a liquid, and we and we pump it up a tube, and then just um, blow it up on the roof. And then you can distribute it better, and you don't have the waste of the super sacks, and you don't have the stress of the crane. Back in Wisconsin, when you were growing up, were you always a bit of a, you know, a change maker or a rebel or looking for different ideas? What's what's behind this? drive to do something so different. I get that you wanted to do something in food, something natural, something healthy, but what was behind the idea to push through and break the rules? Well, I'm a project person, and I guess I've never really considered my, myself a rebel, but definitely a free thinker or someone that if I think there's a better way to do something, I don't have the self-control not to try it, <laughs> if that makes sense. But yeah, I was always tinkering. I, I used to uh, I used to really enjoy plumbing and and things like that. I, I remember I got real focused and I built a potato cannon back when <laughs> I was a, a, a youngster, and that was like the focus. I, I remember I would just like get home from school and that's all I wanted to do was work on it, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'd get into different different uh, activities. Uh, I was always a gamer too. I, I enjoyed chess and and went through some phases with online video games, but luckily I didn't get too into that because it's a dangerous vortex to go down. But, um, yeah, just like activities, and when there's something to focus on, it really just pulls me, and I have no trouble with just staying focused on a specific problem or activity. And is this the future of farms for you, you know, farming in the sky, gardens, and even maybe even parkland? And are we using our roofs badly around the world? Is this what we should be doing? 
Well, we should talk about that, actually, because um, it's been an interesting journey because uh, even even my rhetoric has changed. And, and also, you know, when you start something like this, I guess it was just interesting because there was a lot of enthusiasm for, for this type of project. And this was it was well-timed, as I said, with the economy and with people starting to think more and more about the environment and people thinking more and more about the food system and realizing that we had these chronic diseases. So a lot of different variables sort of fit together at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, city planning, urban planning, um, all that stuff. And people were almost putting words in your mouth that this is the future of our cities and we're going to be growing our own food. And there was also that this was just right around the time of the, the beginning of the public publicization of the vertical farm idea too, which started out as this idea of we're going to build a skyscraper right in the middle of Manhattan and we're going to just have every floor full of food, which is a ridiculous idea yeah. uh, because the real estate's just way too valuable. Um, build your skyscraper a half hour outside of Manhattan. Okay, maybe that makes more sense, but it probably makes more sense to do it in a defunct warehouse. So, you know, that stuff's evolved, but vertical farming and indoor growing has, has continued to evolve too. But um, remember, we're just growing, especially with systems like that, we're growing leafy greens. Like this, it's still basically a monoculture. And people are talking about, is New York City or our cities going to feed themselves and is every roof going to be covered with food? Take a step back. A full 40% of the United States, of this huge area, is farmland. Yeah. And, of course, we export some. And, of course, not all of it's quite as efficient as it could be or some of it's going to animal feed, et cetera. But to think that 40% of our land mass is engaged in agriculture and to think that in this tiny pinpoint of New York City, like, we can feed ourselves out of it, that's, you know, it's crazy. So that's obviously not not going to happen, um, at least not in our lifetimes. But it still just, it made sense, right? To let's grow food on roofs. Like we have this open space and this amazing space. Yeah. Um, but, but there are, back to those logistical challenges, the very first question that you asked, there's certain pieces that need to fit into place. So as I've become more educated and also more experienced, and, and as with my partners and, and our, our team, we've realized that many roofs, when we see them, they're actually we can make better environmental benefit by converting a, by creating a traditional green roof and putting something that's passive up there that doesn't require the going up and down and the labor and, um, and we can grow native species and grasses and wildflowers and create pollinator habitats. Um, And we can still have the effect of cooling the air, reducing the amount of heat that, that, enters the building because we're creating a plant canopy and a layer of insulation for those hot days of summer. And we're also catching a ton of water when it rains and reducing the burden on our combined sewage system. But it might not always make sense to try to sign a lease and grow vegetables. Um, and that's okay. Um, but, but no, I don't think there's going to be food on every roof in New York City. Um, there's places where it makes sense and places where it doesn't. I love you so. Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. The last thing we do for any podcast uh, conversation is something called 60 Second Rebellion. It's a quick fire round of questions. Number one, advice to your 16-year-old self. Just keep being yourself, I think. Don't get too caught up in um, pressures to be what you're supposed to be and, and keep up that 
open mind to, to really having no clue what the future's going to be. Your 16-year-old self's advice to the grown-up you. Don't forget what it was like to be a 16-year-old. Yeah. The most important single character trait for any entrepreneur. Have the confidence that you can do anything, not be afraid, and also not be afraid when things go wrong. You're given the power and money to solve one big global problem and one tiny, annoying, small first world problem. What big and small problem do you solve? Income inequality. And the small one? Traffic in New York City. And what are you most excited about, Ben? I get really excited about continuing to improve this business, figuring out a new system, buying a new tool, um, getting a new process organized or a new line of our business or um, solving a financial problem. That stuff just continues to excite me day, day in and day out. Well, I think you're doing an incredible thing. It's a brilliant story, and it's been fantastic to spend half an hour with you today. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Really good luck. Yeah, thank you. It was great, and get you in New York someday. <laughs> Did you know that most people that listen to podcasts don't have time to leave a review, including my friend Tom Whiteley, who works from home? Go on, be a rebel, tell us what you really think and give us a rating while you're at it. Post-match analysis with Nicole Lyons and Mark Schwakey on Ben Flanner. Ben Flanner, good afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I thought that sounded quite good. Nicole's gone very Sky News. Yeah. Um, He was great, wasn't he? I loved him. Yeah, he he had a lovely um he had this like nervousness about him to begin with, but then he really warmed up, especially when you started talking about the Brussels sprouts and um uh, how hard it uh, what what things are you, do you stink at growing on a roof? Do you know what though? <laughs> I, I I hope it comes out my rocket science joke because although it's the sort of joke. <laughs> All duds are going to quell over. I'm not going to lie. I loved it. I, I, I cringed, and I cringed when he flew, when your hands went up in the air. Was you were really happy at your joke. You say he was nervous and he warmed up. By the end, the rebellion, 60-second rebellion thing that we do, the quick-fire questions, bless him, he had notes, and he will probably not hear this on the edit, but he took an age to get to the answer of each question. Like, that guy is not media. He's just farming. He's just engineering. He's problem-solving. I really liked it. Oh, yeah, the problem-solving bit. So when we were, when I was listening kind of behind the scenes with our producer, Meg... Um, she's I, getting a lot of shout-outs. She's getting yeah. a lot of shout-outs. Yeah. She's like, thumbs up, yeah. Um, so we were saying that his... Um, uh, Wall Street is that where he was yeah. before? Yeah, yeah, Wall Street days. It kind of it was really funny because he's moved from Wall Street to farming. Yeah, um, he still d- describes um, how you grow how you grow certain crops and the timings of them, just like you would yeah. if, with the data thing. There was a very similar way of thinking. But he's also moved from Wall Street to farming, and he's probably moved five yards down the road. He can probably see <laughs> Wall Street from. The he's top probably of the on top of their building. <laughs> That's all for this episode of Rebel Talk. I'm your host, Mark Schwakey. Thanks so much for joining us. My thanks also to our brilliant production team at Hard Six Audio, to Spiritland in King's Cross for the beautiful studio, and to my Rebel Tech co-host Nicole Lyons and producer Meg Wright. Until next time, up the Rebels. Rebels, Rebel, your face is a mess. Rebels, Rebel, how could they know? Hot track, I love you so. Oh, sorry, no, I'm just, I was just adjusting my head, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you nearly knocked that okay. over. <laughs> Should we do another one? Because I think we fucking nailed that.